Good to be with you this evening and uh, excited to uh, dive into uh, to our lesson uh, here, Strange New World. Uh, we've been teaching through uh, this book. It's a book written by Carl Truman. If you haven't been with us, um, that is really trying to teach us about the, the modern self, who, how modern people think about themselves and try to help us understand our, our world a little bit. Um, so we've had various speakers that have, that have come through and have, have taught this uh, uh, a lesson out of each one. We're on session four tonight. And uh, as we begin, I just want to ask, has anyone in here read this book uh, by Carl Truman, Strange New World? Okay, we got a couple. Um, certainly not a very easy book, as you can probably tell as we've gone through these sessions, a bit more philosophical, these technical terms. Um, but the basic principle is, is, is pretty simple, I think. And uh, tonight I hope we can clarify that a little bit and, uh, and help you a little more as we, uh, as we go from here. So as we begin, I just want to ask you, uh, get you talking a little bit as we get started. How would you summarize where we have been so far? So the previous three um, sessions, uh, how would you summarize? What is the main point uh, of, this, of these lessons of this book uh, so far? Any, any thoughts? Done. Excellent. Good. So if you couldn't hear him, objective truth is no longer the, the standard truth outside of us. The ultimate authority is that which is within us. Um, there's been a shift. Good. Anything else that has stuck out to you um, through these past few sessions? Maybe a helpful way to summarize what you've learned? Yeah. Good. Yes. Yeah. Feelings are, are what guides us, the modern persons, how they think. Again, going back to that no more objective reality, but it's feelings-based. Good. Anything else? How would you summarize where we've been? Yeah, Woody. Good. Going to earlier philosophers rather than the word of God. Truth. Good. And we've tackled a number of those names. I think these sessions, dead Germans and all these people. Um, and uh, it's good. Any other thoughts? Jim. Good. The world is me-centered. Very good. There's a number of ways that we can sort of capture the, the essence of, of what we have been, uh, this book is going after, and I think you all are, are hitting on it. Um, let me give you, I'm going to begin just by summarizing basically everything you have just said, uh, and uh, I think we can do so under this word, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. I think the teachers probably have used this term. What does that mean? Expressive individualism really summarizes everything that, that you've said, everything that this book is trying to tell us about the modern person. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. In other words, the most fundamental thing that defines us is not anything outside of us or around us, but it's how we feel about ourselves inside. So to say it another way, expressive individualism states that our inner feelings are a more pure and a more sure guide to discovering who we are as persons than anything else. It says that our problem is that we live in a world that suppresses those feelings and that keeps us back from expressing who we really are. And in order to actualize my, my personhood, I need to break free from those constraints and give free expression of my inward self. And a lot of times this is couched in the language of authenticity. You want to be an authentic person. And that means giving unrestrained expression to whatever I feel inside. We're only authentic when I'm expressing my inner feelings. 
And since some of the strongest inner feelings are sexual in nature, then that's what it means to be truly human, to express ourselves according to whatever sexual craving might be inside. The most extreme form of this, obviously, is transgenderism. Uh, Carl Truman gives a helpful example of, of this. He says that in the past, if a person went to the doctor and said that they think that they are a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would say something like this. He would say, that is a problem. That's a problem with your mind. We need to bring your mind to conformity with your body. See, the authority was something external, the person's biological makeup. But today, if someone were to go to the doctor and say that they believe that they are a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would probably say something like this. That is a problem. It's a problem with your body. We need to bring your body in conformity with your mind. So you see the switch that has taken place. What's now authoritative is the inner self. And anything contradicting that needs to be corrected. And so, since the most fundamental mark of our identity, what it means to be human, is our inward feelings, and expressing these is what it means to be most authentic, then the conclusion from last week's lesson was that it should not be hindered. It shouldn't be opposed or denounced. In fact, it's the role of the state. It's the role of politics to protect the ability to express yourself in this way. And that's the milieu of our world that we find ourselves in. And we, Christians, who hold some external authority like Christian ethics or biblical truth to evaluate morality and try to shape people in certain ways, we are looked on more and more as enemies and as having words that are hate speech. You are opposed to who I essentially am as a human. The modern self has come to the point of resisting any and all external authorities, even to the point of rejecting the external authority of one's own biology. And that's the world we find ourselves in. And that's the definition of the modern self. Well, that brings us now to this week's lesson. And tonight's topic is the adaptability of identity, another one of these fancy terms. The question we're going to be asking tonight is this. Why is it so easy in our world to do what we just described? What is it about our world that enables people to so easily and freely define themselves, often in very illogical ways, in ways that would have been unthinkable in the past? What kind of world must exist for this kind of reasoning to take hold? to be the basic worldview of our time? What is it about our world that enables people to so easily and freely define themselves however they feel? How is it that that thinking is affirmed and accepted by our culture? So we're going to try to answer those questions this evening. The chapter in the book that this lesson comes from is entitled, Plastic People liquid world. So let me begin by sort of summarizing each of those terms for you. What do we mean by plastic people? Plastic people. The modern self is plastic. It's really what we just said. People believe they have the ability to make and remake themselves at will. Think of themselves as Plato. I can shape myself however I desire. People are plastic in the sense that they think their basic identity as humans is not something fixed, but something they decide for themselves. So that's what we mean by plastic people. Liquid world. What does that mean? The liquid world, we mean that our modern world is viewed as something which can be shaped by us, but not as something which shapes us. So, for example, our world used to be a very solid place in the sense that there were certain things which couldn't be ignored. There were certain things which 
shaped and determined the kind of person you would be. Person's family, person's country, their religion, their geography, even their biology. These things determine much of a person's identity, how they thought of themselves, and what kind of life they would live. So in the past, a person that was born into a family, for instance, of a farmer, they would most likely be a farmer, or they would take the skill or the trade of, of their father. They would probably go to the same church as the previous generations in their family, and life would revolve around the same geography that they had had for generations. In other words, no other options were on the table. Certain things were already determined for them by the very world in which they lived. It was a solid world. That's what we mean. But today, the world is much more liquid. Many of those things, like one's nation or religion or family or geography, they don't have that power to shape us as they once did. The world is perceived now as raw materials that I can shape however I desire. And one of the main reasons for this is technology. Technology has made it possible for a person to travel relatively easily outside of his geographical boundary, right? Technology has provided more options for a career. It's provided a greater ability to pursue your own personal desires. It's provided rapid global communication. So a person is no longer isolated by their geography. They're no longer limited to a few career options. They're no longer limited to the community in their backyard. So let's go back to our example of transgenderism. It used to be that nothing was more fixed and determinative than your own biology. The doctor in the past didn't have an option to tell the man who said he thinks he is a woman trapped in a man's body, that you have a problem with your mind. But today, we have modern medicine, and we can manipulate the body in ways that were impossible to do in the past. So you see how technology really plays a a part here. Because of modern technology, our world has become much more liquid. It's viewed more as stuff that can be shaped however we like it, than as the things that shape us and our identity. Now, let me insert a little caveat here. Technology and modernization are not necessarily bad things in themselves. In fact, there's a lot of aspects to them that I rather enjoy, and I'm sure you do too. Um, It's a great blessing that we've enjoyed the freedom to make more decisions for our lives, which has shaped the way that I now am which in the past I wouldn't have been able to. So, for example, I would not in the past have been able to marry my wife, who is from China. I probably would never have been able to visit the country. Certainly wouldn't have had an opportunity to learn the language, nor would I have had the opportunity for higher education. My personhood, in one sense, is really the result of those decisions that I made for myself. And I was able to make those decisions... Because in our world, we have technology that has enabled me to get outside of my geographical boundaries and escape things that were very fixed in the past. So you say, okay, Michael, so technology is good. There's nothing wrong with that. A liquid world may be good in some way. So where does the problem come come in? The problem arises when this notion of a liquid world seeps down into our conception of ultimate realities. The temptation now is to think that all reality is something like Plato that I can shape however I like it. The reasoning goes something like like this. If our world has allowed such freedom and has given people so much flexibility, then why not apply that freedom to all of life, even to the most basic parts of who we are? even down to our own sexuality. So the point we're making in this lesson is that these two things, plastic people and liquid world, are closely related. Carl Truman put it this way. He said, Indeed, the notion of the self with which we now intuitively operate in the West, that of something plastic that we believe we can shape in any way we wish 
is arguably simply only one example of a much broader view of the whole of reality. In other words, since we have technology which has allowed us to shape our world and overcome boundaries which could never have been overcome in the past, we've started to think that all reality is like that as well. We've been able to make our world suit our personal desires in many ways, so why not also shape our identity as humans in that way as well? So now we can answer our question we asked earlier. What kind of world must exist such that plastic people, expressive individualism, can exist within society? And the answer is that it's a liquid world which makes it possible and seemingly reasonable for expressive individualism to exist and thrive. And that is the basic thesis of of this lesson. It's a liquid world that supports this kind of expressive individualism. So before we move on, uh, we're going to unpack this a little bit more. I just want to give you a chance for any questions or or comments from, from that. Any thoughts, any questions? Clear as mud? Okay. All right. So here's the plan for the rest of the lesson. I want to first give you three features of our liquid world. Unpack this a little bit more for you. Define the world that we live in. Um, What is it about our world that encourages people to start to think of themselves in ways that were just unthinkable in the past? And then I'm going to close with a few biblical responses for how we as believers should live in this kind of a liquid world. So let's begin. Three features of our liquid world. Now before we begin unpacking these, I need to give you another one of these technical terms, um, something Truman likes to call imagined communities. So we have expressive individualism, imagined communities. What do all these things mean? Well, imagined communities... Humans not only desire freedom, they desire belonging, don't they? People desire to express their individuality, but they also want to be a part of something that is greater than themselves. So, teenagers who want to express their individuality and their independence through their clothing often end up dressing just like all other teenagers do, right? And that's how societies work. They're made up of individuals, but they're also made up of communities, of larger groups of individuals. Ways that people can find acceptance and and belonging. And fundamental to communities are certain markers, values, standards, ways of determining who's in, who's out. So a community might be made up of a wide range of people. But they can be brought together into one community by holding certain things in common. Things even more fundamental, more important than their own personal identity. They envision their community to be held together by certain standards. Things that show who's included and who is excluded. So for example, a nation like ours, the United States of America, made up of quite a wide range of people, isn't it? Different preferences, experiences, lifestyles, backgrounds the businessman in New York and the rancher in Texas, the immigrant and the um, upper-middle-class suburban um, person. Very different. So the, the question is, is how could these people so different be in any meaningful sense said to be members of the same nation? And the answer is that what's traditionally bound together a nation like, like ours with a wide variety of people, are things like a shared national narrative. We've all bought into the story of America. A shared sense of pride. Shared traditions. Christmas, Easter, Fourth of July. Basic shared vision for the nation. So these things are larger than any any individual. They're held in common by the nation. They're markers that people adopt. It's how they envision their society is holding together. That's what Truman means by imagined communities. It's not imagined, meaning it's not real. It's the way people envision their society to be held together. 
That's what it means. Imagine communities is the basic way in which people envision their community to hold together. Shared standards and values of determining who's in and who's out. So let's put it in simple terms. Societies such as our nation have been held together by glue. And it's the glue of shared values and common values and a common vision for society. And that glue has transcended all other differences. There was a basic way in which people thought of this nation as holding together. It was based on realities which transcended individual experience. But today, all that has shifted. It's no longer how our nation fundamentally views itself as holding together. Our world has become much more liquid. And now we're ready to explore these three features. So now you have this category of imagined communities, how people envision their society holding together. Now we're ready to look at the first feature here. Number one is the loss of traditional values and sources of authority. One of the primary features of our modern world is the loss of the basic institutions which once held our society together. Things which provided a very basic framework for life. Things that were fundamental in how people envisioned their nation as holding together. Truman gives three of these. It's religion, the family, and nation. These were the glue, if you will. Things that carried weight in society. They transcended all other differences. They united people under things larger than themselves. But in our world, that glue has begun to disintegrate. These things, religion, family, and nation, have progressively lost their authority and their importance. Because of that, the common markers that have held our society together are are disappearing. So the question is, if those things no longer carry weight then how do people now envision society as holding together? What will be the new recognized glue, if you will, that people will come around? And the answer is that we live in a world in which the glue consists largely in terms of the experiential, of the psychological. You see, how I feel, what I have experienced, not in terms of authoritative realities, which transcend individual experience. Carl Truman writes, one of the most important factors in the rising authority of the self and of our inner feelings and of the idea that all reality has a plastic quality is the collapse of traditional external sources of authority and identity, the church, family, and nation. Truman again writes, The language of community is now routinely applied to categories that have little or nothing to do with nation or religion or family. And this works out, and how this works out, is that since there are no firm markers like nation, family, and religion around which people find their fundamental identity, they turn inward to find it, to their experience, to psychology. And then they look around to find others who share in that inward experience that they, that they have. So now we have the LGBTQ community, and the black community, and the Asian community, and the oppressed community, and the social justice community. And the point is that these are held as more important than any other marker. It's true, people have always formed community around those who are, who are like themselves. We're not denying that. The point being made here is that these are the most important and most decisive markers. There's nothing beyond the self to provide anything more. What has happened is people have largely ceased to look outside of themselves to something transcendent, and now people are seeking to establish community centered around self-identity, skin color, sexual desires, one's physical makeup, one's experience of oppression. These have been elevated to the level of supreme authority and have become the thing around which people primarily unite. 
Again, Carl Truman writes, No longer are we presented with powerful, fixed narratives, such as that of nation, family, or even bodily sex. Now we are free to choose the narrative to which we wish to belong. The imagined community that will provide us with our identity and purpose. And that's the key. People feel they can shape their identity to anything they want. People feel that they can find their identity from their own self, skin color, sexual orientation. And then they go and seek out community with others who likewise so identify. Today, the common notion goes something like like this. I have the power to choose my identity, and I can choose the community which supports this identity. So the point we're making here is that as the church and family and nation have so weakened in their authority and importance, the response has been that people have looked elsewhere for community and have centered it around nothing larger than the self. We've lost transcendent universal unifiers, and community is exclusively around self-identity. And that leads to the next point. Number two is the power of technology to make it possible to pick and choose one's community. Again, in the past, you couldn't pick and choose your community. You were in it. You were born in it. But now technology has made it possible to self-identify however you want and then pick and choose the community that affirms it. Before the technology we now enjoy existed, there were some things you simply could not attempt to acclaim without being completely ostracized from society. Truman in his book gives the illustration of back a few years ago, people online pledging allegiance to ISIS, people from upper middle class homes in America. Things that would have been absolutely irrational. Can you imagine back during World War II, people pledging allegiance to the Nazis, what would have happened to them? But now, through technology, you can connect to people all over the world. And you can create community wherever you want, however you want, through things like social media. You can form bonds and community with those all over the world. You choose whatever identity you want and find whatever community supports that. And that only strengthens this notion of the authority of the self. You see how that works? It's the power of technology to make it possible to pick and choose one's community. And that leads to the final feature. So there's the loss of traditional values and sources of authority power of technology, and now the inevitable fragmentation of society. This is what our liquid world looks like. So if the traditional glue is coming apart, and new glue is forming around inward experience, and if people are encouraged to identify themselves however they want, because they always can find communities to support them, then you can expect great disunity in society. The framework that has held people together for so long is no longer in place. In fact, those things are now opposed. Carl Truman writes this. He says, modern American society is fragmenting because the imagined communities to which people choose to belong lack any shared narrative. Therefore, the terms of recognition that one group wishes to see American society adopt are often antithetical to those of others. And this leads to further conflict because the very existence of alternative narratives is a threat to a given community's identity. In other words, what we have today is the loss of common values and authorities which transcend other things to hold people together. Instead, we have the chopping up of society into small groups, small collections of identities that have congealed together without anything bigger than the self to unite around. Inward experience is most important. And when that happens, you can expect great conflict. That's why the cake baker who refuses to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage cannot coexist in a society according to this new way of thinking. It used to be that both could coexist, respecting each other's personal choices. It's because there was something transcendent that everyone held to. But now, nothing is authoritative beyond inward experience. 
And to refuse to bake a cake is a rejection of that couple's very existence, that community's very existence. The point we're making here is that such a, that's the world we find ourselves in. And conflict is inevitable. So those are the three features of our liquid world. The loss of traditional sources of authority, the power of technology, and the fragmentation of society. Our world is lacking more and more firm places to build an identity around, something greater than us to unify around. Instead, it's telling us to look inward, identify yourself however you want, and then seek out the community to affirm that. So to answer the question we began with, what kind of world must exist in which it's possible for people to easily adapt whatever identity they want, the answer is it's a liquid world, a world in which traditional values, transcendent markers have lost their authority. It's a world in which no one faces the danger of exclusion because you can always find community out there somewhere. And it's a world which is bound to be a very hostile place to live in. So that's the kind of world that has given rise to and encouraged the growth of this thing we've called expressive individualism. Next, I, I want to give you three biblical responses. Before I go there, I want to ask you any questions on what we just worked through? Any comments? Yes. Yeah, and that's the dilemma we find ourselves in. Yeah, what is the authority beyond inward experience? If that is all we have, and uh, yeah, that's where politics comes in, which is bought into this idea of affirming inward experience is the most important thing. Um, so I think Truman's point here is just inevitable. There's going to be conflict um, if you don't have anything greater than the self um, to unify around. Good question. And what you said sounds very reasonable, but you're appealing to authority. Convictions hold weight. There's something we should respect others' convictions, right? Um, and that has uh, been rejected, right? So that's no longer something that is holding weight. It's inward experience. Um, No one. <laughs> so you're feeling the tension, I think. Um, and and that, that's the point. And you can't live, you can't function having rejected anything greater than the self. It leads to chaos. It leads to the breakdown of, um, of the nation, of society, altogether. So, yes. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. He does not, from what I remember from the book, 
Um, he's focused mainly on uh, the rise of the modern self in, in Western culture where we find ourselves in our world today. Um, but it's good. Yes, Eve. So use the example of BLM, and what was the other ones? Transgender, LGBTQ, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess they're all uniting under the, the banner of the importance of expressive individualism, right? They're under the banner of uh, the freedom of people to elevate inner experience as the ultimate uh, thing. That's about all they have, you know? Um, Questions, comments, yes. That's a good segue to where we're going. Barbara said that ultimately it is a rejection of God's authority, and that's where we find ourselves, like the battle between authorities. That's what fundamentally, how you can boil everything down we're talking about. It's a battle between authorities. Uh, is it the inner self, or is it, or is it God, something greater than the self? Um, so we got a little bit of time remaining. Let me give you these really quickly, and then we can uh, open it back up for questions or comments. Let me give you uh, three biblical responses now to our, to our liquid world. Nothing new, nothing that's going to surprise you, um, but things we need to be reminded of often. Use uh, Francis Schaeffer's uh, title from his, from his famous work, How Should We Then Live? Um, what should be our response as church, as a nation, um, as believers specifically to this liquid world we, we find ourselves in? How should we live? And after going through a lesson like this, it's, I think the temptation is just sort of throw your hands up and say, well, what's the, what's the use? Um, grow discouraged by the decay that we see all, all around us. But may I suggest that that's not the proper response uh, for believers. Um, in fact, we have a great opportunity before us. We have an opportunity as a church, as believers, to stand out in such a contrast to shine with such a bright light in this dark world um, who's pursuing all the wrong things um, in, the wrong, in the wrong places. The world's not wrong for emphasizing identity. The world's not wrong for desiring community. The world's not wrong for desiring fulfillment. It's wrong for seeking those things in rebellion to God. But we as Christians, we have real identity. We know what our identity is. We have real community. And we have great fulfillment through the gospel. So we have a great opportunity before us, and I just want to remind you of, of a few biblical principles here. Number one, we need to know and articulate the temptations before us. First, I would say there are going to be more and more temptations that come from opposition. Christianity, by its very nature, is at odds with the world in which we live. We hold to fixed, absolute truths, things that don't change, things that are outside of us, that fundamentally shape who we are. Things like the image of God in all people, the goodness of gender distinctions, the commandments of our Creator 
the purpose of mankind. We, we hold those things. But in a liquid world like ours, in which any external authority has been rejected, to hold to such kind of beliefs will inevitably invite criticism and opposition. It will place a target on your back. And you have to be aware of that. The temptation will be to downplay those things because of the pressure that it brings. This is something we need to be helping one another to be able to articulate and to expect as we go into the world. The key is authority. Is it me, my inner self, or is it something outside of me? And if you choose the latter, then expect opposition. So there's temptations that are going to come from opposition to downplay truth and then be temptations to subtly conform. This is the water we swim in. I know Mark Hager talks about this a lot. This is just the toxins we breathe. We breathe this air on a daily basis. We're encouraged day and night. Be yourselves. Look inward. Find your identity and your experience. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, the mind is where the battle takes place, first and foremost. Before we're conformed to the world in our experience, we've already been conformed to the world in our minds. We've adopted the world's values, the world's beliefs, the world's presuppositions. And the process of the Christian life is to identify those, to continually identify those and correct those with Scripture. You renew your mind. You bring it back into conformity with the Word of God. So beware of the temptations that are all around us, ones to subtly conform, to adopt the presuppositions of our our world, and then temptations to um, belittle or downplay truth. Number two. We need to communicate the absolute authority of Scripture for all of life. The Bible is all we have. We have no other authority for life. We need to emphasize that over and over again. Parents to your children. Teachers to your students. Church members to one another. The Bible is inspired. It's inerrant. It is the word of the living God. Because it is his word, it's absolutely true. It is unable to have error. Because of that, it has absolute authority for your life and mine. Those are basic truths. But man, are we tempted to forget them? Ignore them? We must hold the scriptures high. Everything needs to be brought back to God's perspective. What does God call this thing that you call a disorder? What does God think about this popular cultural movement? How does God define this lifestyle? In other words, God is not just Lord of part of your life. He's Lord of all of your life, and that includes your thinking. Our thoughts are not neutral. They're either in rebellion to God or they are in submission And as Christians, the calling must be that God and his word are are absolute authorities. Third biblical response, number three. We need to ground ourselves in this glorious identity we possess as believers. Again, the world's not wrong for emphasizing identity. Identity is very important if you've read your Bibles. The world's not wrong for desiring community. It's not wrong... for many of these things. But it's wrong for rejecting God and making our inner feelings the ultimate authority. We need to be continually reminded of our identity according to God over and over again. Who are we? According to Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. 
he created them. In other words, we've been created with the capacity to image our creator, to reflect his character in the world. Our purpose is to carry out his purposes in the world. That's the fundamental glue that holds us together. But because of the fall, that image has been greatly marred and distorted, hasn't it? We fail to image the, our creator as we ought. That's what sin is. But through the gospel, you are not only forgiven, but now you are progressively being restored into that same image that God created you in. Now in the image of Christ. This is your identity as a believer. Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's in the process of transforming you back into the image of his Son. And that should be the goal of your life. Your identity matters. Who you are matters. And it's this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's who you are. That's your identity in this life. It's the primary identity that should define me and you as a believer. It's the one that you should be most concerned about. And this is where we need to be redirecting ourselves over and over again to these biblical truths. Who we are, the authority of Scripture, and the temptations that will be around us. So that is plastic people, liquid world, the adaptability of identity. It's the kind of world that exists that encourages and strengthens this idea of expressive individualism. And it's how we as Christians now ought to live in this world. It's where God's placed us, and it's an opportunity for us to stand out as lights in a dark age. Any closing questions, comments? Yes, Julian. There you go. authority that you hold to and you possess. Um, amen. Yes? Back in the 70s and 80s, when Jamie Dobson was on the radio, he had a majority of people in America listen to him. People who may be in error, he emphasized self-esteem. He should have emphasized self-control. Emphasized self-esteem. He should have emphasized self-control. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's very obvious that the Old Testament says that we're not just 
That's good. That's very good. Yeah. Tim. Amen. Amen. It's good. Where we begin. It's mm-hmm. good. So if you didn't hear a question concerning Liberty students particularly, any encouragement or special specific things to um, help them with, equip them with to, um, to engage some of these issues right on, on campus. Um, I don't think there's, a, there's not a silver bullet. There's nothing magical. I think be a faithful, healthy Christian. Commit to a church. Be growing in Christ be shining as a light like this, have a transformed life that has significance, identity, meaning, all the things that they're looking for. And then don't be afraid to speak truth. Don't be afraid of that opposition, right, that's coming and and the pressures. God spoke it. I'm resting here. Whether you believe it or not, this is the starting point. And um, I tell you, and I leave the results in, in God's hands. And that's basic evangelism. You know, you're being an evangelist. You speak the gospel, share it, and leave the results in, in God's hands. Um, so, it's good. Yes.
Amen. Amen. Yep. And I guess the significant thing you're, you're saying there is it's, it's a battle of worldviews. I think Pastor Farrell has already said this. Um, understanding that, how people think. This is a totally foreign worldview. It's contrary to biblical worldview in every way. And thinking in those terms and equipping people in those terms. Um, so answering in your question as well. Um, yeah, it's a very helpful book. So, yes, one more. So I'd say there's a sense in which nothing has, has changed. So it, it's easy to think this is a really unique time right, in, in church history. There are some aspects in which it is. The church has always lived in a world like, like this, a world that is totally contrary to God. And think of the church in Rome and, and, and all these, these pagan societies. Um, so there's a sense in which it's not, not new. And I'd say the basic commands are the, the Bible. Be a, be a faithful Christian. So as you have opportunity. So no, I don't think we need to be cultural warriors and marching just like they're marching out there. I think you let God do the work. You be a faithful believer. What has God commanded you to do? All right? As you have opportunity, love, do good works, and speak truth as you have opportunity to do it. Um, be a faithful church. Shine as a light here. And everyone has unique spheres of influences. Use that. God's given it to you. Um, some people have unique spheres in politics. Praise the Lord. Some people have unique spheres in the workplace. Praise the Lord. Shine as a light there. Love people. Speak truth. Don't be ashamed of it. And, uh, and don't think the Lord needs us to uh, be out there waving banners like, like their strategies to conquer. Uh, the Lord conquers much more, much more powerfully through the Spirit. All right. Well, we're out of time. If you have any other questions or, or comments, I would love to talk to you afterwards. So. Thank you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the clarity it brings. Where would we be without it? And Lord, where would we be without your spirit opening our eyes? We're not better at all than the the world around us. We're just like them. But you had mercy on our souls and caused us to be born again. Gave us life, gave us hearts to submit to your word, to hear in the Bible your voice. Lord, I ask that you help us to be faithful believers, to rest in the power of the Spirit, the power of the Gospel, the authority of your Word, 
not to be afraid of the temptations of pressure around us. And that we would hold to the authority of who you are and the goodness of the gospel and all that you've made us to be. We love you. I ask that you would use us, cause us to bear much fruit as we are your faithful servants. We love you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.